This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. I have with me today Lachlan Cartwright, who is editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, and Sarah Fisher, who is with Axios. She's an amazing media reporter who I read every Tuesday who could miss media trends. I read Lachlan on a Tuesday, too, with Confida, his incredibly scoopy gossip column on the media. So we're here to talk about what's likely to happen in 2024 and my first topic of conversation is, are we underplaying the idea that Donald Trump could potentially be the next president? And what kind of an impact might that have on the media scene that you guys report on? Juicy topic to start. Well, I think that the news has done a good job, especially cable, of covering all of the indictments against the former president. And that matters because while I don't think it's going to stop him from wanting to pursue a, you know, the next presidential Uh, nomination, it could tactically. And so I don't think we've underplayed that risk. What I do think has been a little bit underplayed and is a little bit misunderstood is the extent to which his command over the Republican Party doesn't just extend to the establishment. It really still is sticky with voters. And I think that people, when we look back at the 2020 election, the narrative that is pervasive is, oh, Donald Trump just keeps saying the election was stolen. What we don't talk about as much is that he actually was able to command like a record number of Republican voters coming out to vote for him, even though he lost. And that matters because heading into 2024, you have a lot of momentum still behind him. And so I I think there's a chance that we're underplaying the extent to which he actually performed in the last election. But I don't think we're underplaying the risks in terms of legalities ahead of his next shot. Do you think he can overcome them and be the next president? I mean, I know that's kind of a legal question, but I feel like there's a strong likelihood that he could be president. And I feel like I don't really read that anywhere except for some tweets on on X. No, as I say, from a campaigning perspective, this will boost him. He'll use all of these indictments to lure viewers tactically and legally. Yeah, no, I think we're heading into this black swan year, you know, that that anything is, is possible. Uh, you know, we've got these four, you know, criminal... Uh, matters uh, that he has to address, plus this election. And I think that that anything could happen. I, I think there's a lot of variables as well that, you know, we need to get better at reporting on. One is RFK Jr., who you know really is a wild card here and could take uh, a lot of the vote away from both Trump and from Biden. I, you know, Sarah's correct. The media is doing a, a great job of you know, covering off all of the, the criminal matters. Do you think folks are secretly saying, well, you know, this could be 
at the end of democracy, but at the same time, uh, it's going to be a, another ratings bonanza and that's good for the media. What do you think folks are thinking about right now? I think in terms of cable, what is going to be the decider of cable's fate is NBA negotiations, not necessarily news ratings. I think that's an added bonus on their way downhill, but I don't think it saves the cable industry. I think it gives them a ratings boost temporarily, gives them some profit to play with. They can sell more ads temporarily while they rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. So that's what I think it happened, what I think matters for cable. But I think in terms of news consumption writ large, the first time Donald Trump ran, he was seen as, it was an entertainment story. And I remember there was a lot of um, stress and confusion around some outlets. The Huffington Post is a great example, actually tagging Trump stories as entertainment, not politics. And what's different now is that some of the political consequences of Donald Trump's presidency have an everyday impact on people. And I think that they are much more hyper aware that this is a politics story and not an entertainment story. And a, a great example of that, you know, him bringing on a few conservative justices completely changed the abortion conversation in the United States, which impacts, you know, hundreds of millions of women. So I think that this next time around, people will almost take it more seriously in both regards, people who support him and don't support him as a politics story. And I don't know what that's going to mean for things like subscriptions and for people buying into the news media, because like I said, the last time around, I think people got into it because it was just shock and awe and entertainment. This time around, I think it's a lot more serious. I don't know what that means for people opening up their pocketbooks and keeping their eyes open. So Lachlan, you spend a lot of time watching Fox News. What do you think a Trump presidency could do for Mr. Murdoch? Put a few more bucks in his back pocket. Uh, you know, I think like all of cable, a Trump presidency would see a ratings boom, you know, particularly for Fox, they would capitalize on that. You know, big ratings equals, you know, big bucks. Uh, I think what's interesting is that, you know, this will be the first test of Lachlan. Uh, Rupert, as of today, assumes his new position, semi-retirement or quite quitting or however you want to phrase it. Um, but, you know, the attention will then be on Lachlan and, you know, what calls Lachlan will make, how much the network goes in on Trump. That's uh, something that, you know, I'm very interested in in seeing how that plays out over the next several months. Do you think there'll be more reshuffles at Fox News? I mean, I'm kind of interested to see how they play a Trump presidency if that happens, given the antipathy between the Murdoch family and Donald Trump. Do you think they put make bygones be bygones and get back to business? Yeah, I mean, it's all about business, you know, and Donald Trump is the greatest example of that. You know, Rupert for many years had spoken to friends and confidence about Trump and was very negative about him. But when it came to a, you know, a, a Trump presidency, all that was put aside uh, because, you know, this is a business and Trump means ratings and that means revenue. Sarah, in the run-up to the election, are cable news outlets covering the candidates differently? I notice on air there seems to be less emphasis on opinion, less emphasis on consultants and lawyers, and more emphasis on what do the voters think? I think that's the case, especially at CNN, where I'm a contributor. There's a big focus right now on original reporting and keeping it newsy as opposed to being focused on opinion. I think the other networks still dive in pretty deep on opinion. I think what's different is that the audiences are over the 24-7 Trump takes, whether you're on the left or on the right. 
and they want to see new types of opinion about new types of issues. And right now, especially with the war, two wars ongoing, there's a lot more to talk about than just Donald Trump. And so I think that's one big shift. I think another big shift is that Donald Trump, right now, a lot of the conversation is around his legal challenges. And so there's only so much you can do that's interesting around explaining the nuances of how court cases work. And that is not as exciting. And that's not as, you know, much of ratings bait, at least not for Fox, probably, and not for CNN, maybe a little bit for MSNBC. So I think what they're trying to figure out right now is how do they keep these newer topics interesting, as interesting as the drama from the last election? And it's a challenge. The ratings are definitely down. You know, they got a small, some of them, Fox and CNN particularly, got a small boost from Israel. But uh, I think it's going to be pretty hard. I think what they're going to bank on and hope for is that some of these Republican contenders are spicy and can create some tension with Donald Trump in the lead up to a VP pick. So, like, how does Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy go head to head? How do he and Nikki Haley go head to head? I think that becomes more of the cable news fodder leading into 2024. So let's talk about some other issues. Layoffs, the business model underpinning journalism these days appears to be under threat from many different forces, uh, mostly algorithms, the big tech companies taking all the money and folks just not being able to figure out a business model for journalism. Lachlan, what are you seeing out there? Obviously, there's layoffs happening always at the end of every year, you see that when folks don't make budget. Are you seeing different things this year? Does it seem like we're in a much more dire situation than previous year ends? I, I think this was the year that, you know, digital media, the um, the emperor was seen without its clothes. You know, we've seen uh, at outlets like, you know, Geo uh, that just shuttered uh, Jezebel just this past week, uh, Vice, you know, with its bankruptcy and uh, and BuzzFeed News, yeah, you know, we're really seeing the, the pressures on a digital media business to be to be profitable, uh, and you know just how hard that is. Even the Daily Beast, the outlet that I work for, was put up for sale this year, and although a sale didn't eventuate, you know it's clear to you know, run a digital media uh, business. It is incredibly hard in this market because you know how do you make money? You know it's through subscriptions or it's through events. But, you know, in terms of advertising, good luck to you. The margins of programmatic advertising is so slender and you would need to have such a you know, huge amount of traffic. Well, what's happened? You know, the likes of Facebook and, and now X, those funnels, those rivers of gold with traffic have been turned off. And so you're really seeing the pressure being put on digital media, the squeeze being put on outlets. Um, and that has resulted, sadly, in a lot of good journalists losing their jobs this year. Do you think, Sarah, we'll see a lot of weaning out next year? I mean, as these things happen, there's always seems to be new places for journalists to go. I don't want to be too downbeat about things. I mean, I'm, I'm on Substack. I'm doing a podcast. Plenty of people are going the kind of creator economy route. What do you see as the 2024 story for, for digital media? I don't think that the layoffs are going to be as harsh as they were this year. What happened was we're coming off of, in 2021 was a banner year for advertising. It was so hyperinflated. And as a result, news companies hired up in bulk, you know, late 2021, early 2022. Then they saw that when the ad market started to crater in 2022, 2023, that they couldn't support these new heads. So that's why you're seeing a record number of cuts. Heading into 2024, I think news outlets are much more aware of 
the tumultuousness in the ad market. I also think people like myself and consultants and uh, analysts have been writing this. This is the new normal. And so I think for once they are starting to recognize like they can't bulk hire or they they need to be very conservative about how they spend. And as a result, you're not going to see them having to pull the rug out as much because they aren't going to overinvest up front. In terms of what this means for journalism and outlets and where they go moving forward, news industry, hundreds of years old, it's always evolved. There's always going to be outlets. There's always going to be opportunities for journalists. There are fewer now than there were because in the print era, in traditional media era, the CPMs that floated those business, the advertising rates were so inflated that we could afford to have tens of thousands of local newspaper writers and reporters. There's fewer jobs now, especially in local. However, I think if you're really determined to be involved, there are ways looking at yourself, Claire, you know, you could go the independent creator economy route, you could work for these digital outlets, all those things. What is different is that the new age business model for media is not reliant solely on subscriptions and ads. Those two revenue models always floated media. Now it's so much more diversified, which means that you as a journalist have to be on board with helping to support a company in these other endeavors, which might mean you have to think a little bit about how your editorial relationship is different. A good example of this, affiliate marketing. You write an article, a audience development manager might be putting in a few links to click out where they might get some uh, return money from that links sale. You have to be comfortable with that as a journalist, hosting events, hosting salon dinners. You know, what are the parameters that you're going to be comfortable with and not? I look at some outlets and the way that they host events, I wouldn't feel comfortable with some of those things. I don't feel comfortable interviewing a sponsor as an editorial first feature. Like we don't do that at Axios, some do. And so I think that's the new reality. It's not about whether you want to find a role. You can find a role. It's about whether or not you're going to find a role in a place that allows you to maintain your sense of editorial credibility while they have to experiment with new revenue lines. That's where it's going to become really hard. Where have you been seeing cuts, Lachlan? Are you looking at AI potentially throwing lots of journalists out of business? Look, I, I think the AI matter has been overhyped. You know, I, I think that, you know, there's going to be a role for this new technology. You know, AI can't liquor up a source. It can't knock on someone's door and win their trust and get them to hand over sensitive documents. It can't, you know, be on someone's doorstep after a tragedy and uh, get that family to agree to do, you know, an interview uh, where they tell their loved ones uh, tales. I, I think it will have an impact on some areas of the business, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, journalism at its very, very you know, major function of, of finding out new information, that's something that um, at this point uh, AI can't do. So there is, you know, going to be a need for journos to, to go out and bang on doors and rattle cages and, you know, pick up phones. Sarah, what are your thoughts on AI and how it's going to change the media? In the short term, it's going to have a huge impact on the business side of media. So one of the big conversations right now, I go to a bunch of conferences for you know media executives, is folks are looking at their supply chain and they're thinking, oh my gosh, there's a lot of friction points here of manual jobs that we could easily displace and they're not going to impact our editorial credibility. We need to move on that now. So we're talking about account managers. We're talking about revenue and billing operations. We're talking about advertising operations and optimization. Those are all jobs that are going to be very fast changed by AI. Doesn't mean that they'll be necessarily replaced, but those people will have to be retrained and they'll have to do new types of roles to be managing the AI systems. 
On the newsroom side, you know, AI is going to help you optimize your existing person first operations for sure. I'm personally very excited that AI is going to help me tag my, you know, stories. It's going to help me discover images faster from our existing libraries, things like that. So in the short term, it should really help you in most newsrooms actually become more efficient. I don't think AI is going to replace journalism jobs, not in the short term, not right now, and not for most outlets. We're seeing it start to creep in in places like local and sports and you know finance. And anytime there's something that feels editorially disingenuous, they get immediately called out. Even hyper-local sites, when they use AI to write an article, it becomes a national story because it's botched. My fear is it becomes so frequently a national story of botched that people aren't afraid to are embarrassed to start using it because they're like, well, we're all getting called out for doing it. In that case, you might see a quicker adoption, but I, I just don't foresee it really impacting like, you know, high value journalism jobs quite yet. The only other place though, where I can see it being a really serious issue is local. Like the, the big national outlets, they've got too much reputationally to bank on and they make so much money, not from scale you know, pumping out articles, they actually make money from developing trusted relationships and selling on that brand, things like high-end events and memberships and subscriptions. It's local where I think it's going to start to feed into a lot of sort of human-based coverage. And that makes me worried. And and do we think the news organizations are going to make progress on the copyright conversation with uh, the scraping of all of the, the information and authors' books being scraped and having AI uh, trained on copyrighted material? Is that a place where media companies can win and potentially see new revenue? They're going to be fine. They're going to be okay. I'll tell you why. I read through most of the publisher's comments to the Copyright Office that were due October 30th. Not only did I find them to be pretty compelling, but there's just so much scale. Their arguments are being mirrored by authors, by musicians. So it's they're not alone. And I think you're going to, first of all, these decisions will be played out in courts. Like our Congress is so defunct, it's not going to pass laws. But you're going to see different courts interpret these things in different ways. And we've already started to see sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. But I think net net, there's going to be enough wins that we're going to start to see copyright laws shift in terms of how they're enforced and interpreted to make room for this new era. Now, this does not mean that I think all publishers are going to be paid for every little thing that's scraped. But I definitely think that there's going to be some progress. Let's broaden the conversation a little bit to the big media companies and their streaming efforts. And 2024 is supposed to be the year that they show some profits and that they get out of the the kitchen sink year that was 2023. Disney and Warner just reported the investors didn't really like the story. What do we see these big media companies doing in terms of being able to right the ship and find a new story for Wall Street and gin up some enthusiasm for the idea that streaming could eventually bring some profits? Or is that a story that people have given up hope and they want to go back to the old ways and uh, hope that movies will start to come back or the box office will grow back again? Lachlan, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think we've seen with Netflix and their crackdown with you know password sharing, how that has you know impacted on their, their bottom line. You know, I think there's still a lot of hope for some of their competitors uh, whether it's uh, HBO, um, uh, et cetera. But, um, you know, I think there's some some bright spots coming into next year. Sarah, we've got ad tiers everywhere, right? That's the big hope. So many analysts were so slow to the ad tier. I remember one person was saying, but, but Sarah, a, a big analyst, but Sarah, people don't like watching ads. And I said, oh, you totally don't get it. Like from your little Wall Street perch, 
the average household income in the U.S. is like $50,000. People will gladly watch some ads if it means they can save money. And we're seeing that trend play out. In terms of like what this means for profitability at these companies, though, the challenge is that in a streaming advertising environment, your CPMs are still super low compared to linear television. The ads are more efficient. There's more ways where you can be uh, upsell people with certain types of targeting, but net net. It's the same challenge that the print organizations faced transitioning to digital. It's that you never want to let go of the traditional products because those rates are so high and the margins are so high. And so the worry that I have for a lot of these companies is, yeah, sure, once you really get an ad system going, you're going to make more money potentially than you were just doing subs. But if you were coming from a place where you need to replace traditional television margins, it's going to be tough. And it's it might never go back to how lucrative it used to be. And so those companies are going to need to figure out ancillary businesses to attach onto streaming to start to really see profits to bring them back to their heyday. Whether that's I own a sports entity and I'm licensing my brand for betting, or I own really strong IP and I'm going to start creating or licensing my IP for mobile games, or I own strong IP and I'm going to license it out for theme parks. Like this is the way that they're going to be able to juice these streaming entities and the IP in it. I don't know. I truly don't know that just streaming ads is going to be able to ever displace those TV margins. And that's going to be a real problem. So we're headed towards the end of the year, Thanksgiving, the holidays. Um, I'd love to ask you guys what your favorite stories of 2023 are and where we see some of those businesses that you've written going next year. Lachlan, let's start with you. I've been uh, documenting the trials and tribulations of the ABC News boss, um, Kim Gowen, uh, who is, uh, you know, emerged as a character in, uh, in Confider over the last uh, couple of years. Um, but, uh, you know, Disney faced a choice next year whether to, to re-up her contract, which I believe is up in April, or, or seek new leadership. So um, that's something I'm keeping a close eye on. Uh, similarly, we've been uh, writing about uh, The Messenger, uh, Jimmy Finkelstein's uh, digital upstart um, that has faced a lot of headwinds. Uh, we reported earlier uh, that um, uh, their president, Mad Dog Beekman, has been telling people the site is running out of money, uh, which is quite concerning considering it's only been in market six months. So I think that's a really interesting yarn about how you know people get into digital media. They think they have a, a great idea, which was to bring back 60 Minutes meets Meet the Press meets Vanity Fair, and how that's going to turn out for you know, all the great journalists that they have hired uh, in the last um, uh, several months. Plus, you know, the two obvious ones, Mark Thompson at CNN, how is he going to really rework or make digital a, a go-to site that he could potentially monetize? And then the other one I'm really curious about is Will Lewis at WAPO, another Brit. You know, how is he going to refashion that newsroom? What does that mean for Sully Busby? So uh, I'm really excited about next year and then you know, the, the one that, you know, I always like looking at is the Murdochs and, and Uncle Roops and uh, how things emerge with Lachlan, what deals Lachlan will, you know, seize upon to try and reshape the business in his eyes. Do you think that Smartmatic will be a big story? I think it'll get settled. Uh, I think it'll get settled uh, early in the new year. They're doing depots uh, as we speak. I think that'll give them a bit of parameters on, on what that settlement will look like. Um, the New York court system moves much slower than Delaware. So this matter isn't scheduled for trial until 2025. So there's a bit of lead time, but 
uh, all signs uh, for me point to a settlement and not a settlement on the courts of the steps like we saw with Dominion. I think this settlement will will come uh, early in the, the new year. Sarah, how about you? You're, you're headed off. Uh, we'll ask you about that in a second. But tell us your favorite stories of the year and, and where they go next year. Yeah, I love all the stories Lachlan just said. I love following the coverage in Confider. It's always very scoopy and it's always very fresh and it's always very interesting, which one of the things that I a struggle I face is that, you know, media reporting, at least the way I do it, is super B2B. It's really meant for professionals. And that sometimes can be really wonky, you know, talking about tax incentives and financials, whereas like Lachlan keeps it really spicy and interesting and hot. And so like when I tell people what I do, I'm like, that's what you should read. <laughs> you can read mine if you want to do your business on make transactions, but Lachlan's is really fun. Well, I find you both to be must reads every week. I like read you every week, Sarah. So thank you for that. And to you too, Claire, as well with your newsletter. Um, what do I think is hot stories? I've been really, really obsessed with the Forbes deal simply because I'm from New Jersey. It's a great New Jersey uh, American media brand. And it hits on every major theme of you know foreign money trying to come into media companies, of the challenges of digital media firms, of deal-making in the 21st century. They went through the SPAC boom. They're now trying to do a private consortium. And so I love that story, and I'm curious to see how that plays out. I'm very anxiously uh, awaiting to see what happens when this tax provision, the William Morris Trust, expires uh, next year. This was a tax provision that was created when Warner Brothers and Discovery came together in a joint venture. And when it expires, it'll allow that company to do a lot of bigger deal making. And so they could pursue potentially a merger or an acquisition with a much bigger player, whether that's NBCU or it's Paramount or whatever. And I think that will usher in a lot more consolidation. So I'm looking at what's going to happen there. Uh, same thing with Disney. You know, They've said that they're looking for a strategic partner for ESPN. They are possibly looking for buyers for some of their linear TV networks. So the M&A slate is going to be really hot in 2024. That's going to be the biggest story that I'm looking at. Yeah. And tell us about your plans for the end of the year. You're having a little bit of a break, right? Hopefully you're having a break. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Axios, I've been with Axios since the very beginning. I joined in 2016. I started writing my newsletter for them in 2017. And they give employees who've been there for at least, I think, six years, six weeks. I've been there for seven. So I get a six-week paid sabbatical that I'm going to take literally today. <laughs> I'll fly out later. And through the end of the year, and I'm going to Southeast Asia. So if any of your listeners have recommendations for places like Vietnam or Cambodia or Philippines, email them to me. I'm sarah at axios.com. But I will be listening to all of my favorite podcasts, including this one, and reading all my favorite newsletters, including yours and Lachlan's. So I'm excited to be off, but I will also be sort of lurking in the background. Keeping tabs, as every good journalist does. Well, have a wonderful holiday, Sarah. Hope it's great. I'll be missing you when you're away, but looking forward to seeing what's next in January. And thank you also to Lachlan Cartwright from The Daily Beast. I appreciate your time, guys. Thanks so much. Well, that was a great conversation with Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher and the Daily Beast's Lachlan Cartwright. Lots to chew on there as we head towards the holidays. Thank you for listening to the latest season of The Media Mix. To stay in the mix, subscribe to this podcast and the newsletter, themediamix.substack.com. And you can email us at themediamixus at gmail.com. And stand by for a couple of great guests coming in the next few weeks. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review, and let us know your thoughts on the podcast. Mm -hmm.